You can start a long argument over a certain group of nerds by asking them what they think the first slasher movie is. Some might say Silent Night, Bloody Night, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas is a popular choice. If you consider Italian exploitation to be slasher movies, then Blood and Black Lace. You could also say it's Psycho. Don't consider Psycho too classy to be a slasher movie, which is an odd thing to say, but I stand by it. Halloween is definitely not the first slasher movie, but it is the point where slasher as a horror movie subgenre can yield into a defined form. If you're watching it for the first time and you've seen a whole bunch of other films that ripped it off, in other words, every slasher movie that followed it, you'll have a lot of moments where you're going, oh, so that's where that came from. This film is very widely beloved. There are plenty of retrospectives on it. Our brother-in-law didn't show uh, Fearless Films ran the entire franchise beginning to end. This is actually the first episode of Real Deep Dive where I'm doing something that Pete did before, hopefully not being too redundant about it. So I decided that the best way to do it would be to have my co-host be somebody who hasn't seen it before and just watch it for the first time and have their fresh, hot take opinion to bring out. So talking about John Carpenter's Halloween, the original from 1978, not one of the other two remakes that also have the same name, confusing things even more. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. And the co-host joining me for this episode is my brother, Sylvan. Welcome back, Sylvan. Hello. It's been a while since you were on the show, but you're a popular co-host. Actually, the two most popular episodes of the show are, are both hosted by you. Oh, really? That's kind of cool. Yeah, My Little Pony, which I'm not super shocked by, because even though it's moment at the forefront of geeky zeitgeist has somewhat subsided a bit, there's still a lot of pony people online. But weirdly enough, Easter Parade, people really love that one. Oh, good to know. That makes me happy. Yeah, I, I am going to trot you out every time I want to talk about a musical, but like every other person in my social circle, you are a horror buff, and we started watching horror movies when we were way too young, too. Yeah, the first horror movie I ever saw, um, I was three years old. This is because our father has this interesting theory that you can watch whatever you want in front of kids, and they're only going to process what they're uh, able to process at that age. And if something is too adult for them, they just won't even see it. That's not true. So we were watching Freddy movies when we was too young for that. However, when we were like age appropriate to watch horror movies and nobody looked sideways at us, I think our first major franchise was the Scream one. It's the self-aware slasher that's sort of lampshading all the tropes that Halloween created. So I, I was interested in watching this with you because last year, Rachel and I were working our way through old-timey horror movies, and you know we did Friday the 13th, and she's like, oh, that's a fun slasher movie, a fun low-budget slasher movie. And then when we did Halloween, she's like, oh, this is just good. Like, it doesn't need a qualifier. I was under the impression that you would be a little less generous because Rachel's more tolerant of crap. <laughs> Yeah, I think good is a bit of a stretch. I saw it as close to good. Like, I can see why it influenced and helped create a subgenre, because there were so many good ideas happening and aspects of it that really worked, but I don't think it quite got to the point of being quality. My assumption is that you would think that it's kind of basic. I mean, basic can work, though. Um, what really gets to me is because of the type of writing I like to do and the type of stories I like to read and whatnot. The characters were just so thin and so badly acted, with the one exception of our final girl. And as you pointed out while we were watching it, Jamie Lee Curtis was the only one of those actors who went anywhere after the movie. So 
that was why. And I still can't even tell if Lori really was that great a character or if Jamie Lee Curtis's performance just elevated her. And one thing I noticed in other movies in this situation is that if everyone is bad, it, it doesn't hurt as bad. But if one person is a competent actor and everyone else is bad, that just makes it worse. And just also, too, with the writing, you got the impression that, like, they were aware of what human beings are and how they might behave in certain social situations, but they didn't know how to make dialogue that reflected real people. I will be talking about the screenplay when we get to the after bits, but first, let's get into the plot. Okay, our first scene, very famous scene, on October 31st, 1963, in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois, six-year-old Michael Myers stabs his older sister Judith to death with a kitchen knife, and he is then incarcerated at Smith's Grove Sanitarium. The opening shot is first person's perspective through Michael's sight. That is a thing that is going to be popping up a lot in this film. Fifteen years later, on October 30th, 1978, Michael's psychiatrist, Dr. Samuel Loomis, and his colleague, Marion Chambers, arrive at the sanitarium to take Michael to court. Michael steals their car and returns to Haddonfield, killing a mechanic for his coveralls, and then stealing a white mask and knives from a hardware store. The next day, on Halloween, high school student Lori Strode drops off a key at the now-dilapidated Myers residence so her father can sell it. Myers is stalking her throughout the day. Lori notices this, but her concerns are brushed aside by her friends Anne Brackett and Linda Vanderklok. Loomis arrives in Haddonfield and discovers that Judith's tombstone has been stolen. He contacts Annie's father, Sheriff Leigh Brackett. He is the token skeptical police officer in this horror movie. And they both investigate the Myers house. As I said before, Leigh is skeptical because he's a cop in a horror movie. However, Loomis convinces him to patrol the streets anyways because Loomis is a respectable grown man, not a teenager that the sheriff can blame being full of drugs and therefore lying. So in this case, too, we are dealing with like a real life serial killer. It is kind of a plausible situation as opposed to having to be like, oh, there's a Dracula or there's a sewer clown eating babies. You know, it, it sounds a little bit better to the skeptical cop, right? Yeah, perhaps. I do think a lot of it has to do with Loomis being a grown-ass man, though, because police officers in horror movies do not trust teenagers. Fair. Even if it's just a dude with a knife, that's a thematic undercurrent of these things. Parental abandonment. Talking about that more in the theme bits. Okay, Loomis stakes out the Myers house, expecting Michael to return. That night, Lori babysits Tommy Doyle while Annie looks after Lindsay Wallace across the street. Yeah, so Lindsay totally lost the lottery on babysitters. Little Tommy is having a much better night. Yeah, Annie spills butter on herself, which gives the film a pretext for her, you know, to take her shirt off and have a panty shot. That's her contribution to babysitting. Lindsay's just sort of sitting there in the background watching TV. Totally ignoring her babysitter as well. She showed the woman's a disaster. Sorry, girl, she's not actually grown up. To make things even worse, Annie's boyfriend Paul calls to pick her up, so Annie immediately drops Lindsay off with Lori and Tommy. However, before Annie can leave in her car, she's attacked by Michael, who had been hiding in the back seat. He strangles Annie before slitting her throat. Soon afterwards, Linda and her boyfriend, Bob, arrive at the Wallace house. After noting that Lindsay is at the Doyle residence, they take advantage of the situation by having sex. Michael kills Bob when he ventures out for a post-coital beer. Michael then poses as Bob in a ghost costume, which Sylvan found hilarious because Bob is one of those guys who's wearing very 70s sunglasses at night. And when Michael puts on the sheet to be the ghost, he takes the sunglasses and puts them on top. Everything about that scene was ridiculous. More so than the sex scene itself, because as I later discovered, 
if a sex scene in a movie has like the man thrusting in any capacity that immediately brought up obscenity laws in various states whereas if he's just limply lying on top of her and then she's making orgasm noises anyways that apparently is okay which is why so many 70s movies have sex scenes like that it confused the hell out of me until i found this out Linda doesn't suspect Michael's subterfuge until it's too late. Michael strangles her while she's in the middle of a phone call to Lori, who mistakes her choking noises for a prank of some sort. Also, the cord on that telephone must be, like, so much stronger than... I'm, I'm old enough to remember what cord and telephones were like. The fact that he strangled her with that was magnificent. Meanwhile, Loomis discovers the stolen car and searches the streets with Sheriff Brackett, who is at least a little less skeptical because the stolen car from the psych house is just sitting right there. They split up, with Brackett covering the block with his patrol car and Loomis watching the front. Growing a little more suspicious, Lori goes over to the Wallace house and discovers Annie's corpse arranged on the bed with Judith's tombstone. If you're wondering where that trope comes from, it's this one. Michael likes to put on little dioramas with his victims. Very artsy. She then finds Bob's body swinging from a doorway and Linda stuffed into a linen closet. At this point, Michael ambushes Lori and she falls down the stairs. A frantic Lori staggers to a neighbor's house and screams for help, but is ignored. Lori then gets inside the Doyle residence. The door is locked, but she throws a potted plant at uh, Tommy's bedroom and that causes him to go downstairs and let her in. She lunges for a phone, but Michael had already severed the connection. Michael then attacks Lori, who stabs him with a knitting needle and assumes that he's dead, which you took very, you took a number of final girl points off of Lori's score for that. I mean, I knit. Um, aluminum knitting needles are definitely like you can hurt someone with them, but with everything he had done to that point in the movie, there was no way she killed him. Lori locks the children in a bedroom shortly before Michael awakens. This causes Lori to hide in a bedroom closet. Michael eventually discovers her, but she stabs him with a clothes hanger. This causes Michael to drop his knife, prompting Lori to grab it and then just give him a good one on the side. She then instructs the children to flee to a neighbor and call the police. The screaming, panic-written children attracts the attention of Loomis, who then ignores the children and enters the house. Michael recovers yet again and renews his assault on Lori. She manages to claw off his mask, which distracts him long enough for Loomis to enter the room and shoot him six times. Michael falls off the balcony and lands on the lawn below. Loomis walks over to the balcony and is unsurprised to see that Michael is gone. Carpenter had instructed Pleasants to both act surprised and unsurprised and just pick the take that he liked best. He stares off into the middle distance as Laurie sobs. The final shot in the film is Michael's heavy breathing being audible over a montage of various locations in Haddonfield, implying that he could be anywhere. And that is the film. Now, getting into the production side of this, first we're going to talk about how the story was put together. John Carpenter was a big fan of the film Black Christmas and asked its director, Bob Clark, who also directed A Christmas Story, he has a weird resume, if he could write a sequel to it. Clark gave him his blessing and Carpenter started hacking away at it. It eventually developed into an independent feature, not unrelated to Black Christmas directly. The screenplay itself was written over the course of 10 days. That explains a lot. Producer Deborah Hill wrote the dialogue for all the female characters, basing it on her personal experiences screwing around in high school and being a babysitter, or as Loomis's parts were largely composed by Carpenter. Uh, did she say anything about her use of the word Tommy? Yes, that was actually improvised by the actress playing Linda. Ah, uh, and she didn't have much of a career after this movie. 
Nope. Both Hill and Carpenter wanted Halloween to be sort of like a radio play with a scare every 10 minutes or so. Haddonfield is modeled after Deborah Hill's hometown of Haddonfield, New Jersey, whereas the street names are taken from Carpenter's hometown of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, Hill derived her uh, inspiration from the concept of Samhain. Samhain. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I pronounced it incorrectly. I figured you'd correct me if I was butchering it. She drew the idea of the, this is the day of the year where the souls are free to plague the living, the barriers between the corporal world and the afterlife are at their thinnest, and this dovetailed into the idea of the most evil kid who ever lived. Carpenter's feelings were a little less metaphysical. He just wanted to make a crass, crude exploitation film, the sort of movie he would have loved to have seen when he was like 10 or 11 years old and probably still too young to start watching horror movies. If you look up Halloween on DoesTheDogDie.com, there is a scene where Michael Myers kills the German Shepherd. This was Deborah Hill's idea. She was afraid that people would identify with the killer, that... Is sympathized too much with him because that happens a lot. Most subsequent slasher movies have this stumbling block. So she decided, we're going to have him kill a dog. He actually killed two dogs. There's one that he killed off screen as well and ate. And uh, the incompetent cop thinks a stump did it. Oh, right. That part. Yeah, that stuck with me because um, I've never encountered a skunk that was uh, predatory towards dogs. (laughs) Carpenter, who, while he was in college, visited sanitariums uh, in a relation to his degree, based Myers' persona off a schizophrenic patient he interacted with, whom he was a little off-put by, by their eerily blank stare. Myers, in the screenplay for the film, is not referred to as Michael Myers. If you even have a little bit of familiarity with Halloween, you know that they refer to him as The Shape. You know, they want him to be about as inhuman as possible, as little relation in humanistic characteristics as one can have with a humanoid character. We'll be talking about this a bit more if we're, when we're talking about the film's legacy. And uh, here I thought that part of the reason they didn't focus on him very much was just because they wanted to hide how cheap the mask was. I'm sure that played into it a little bit. A bunch of the characters' names are homages. Laurie Strode was the name of John Carpenter's first girlfriend, which is an interesting tribute. (laughs) Tommy Doyle is named after the lieutenant of the same name from Rear Window. He's the skeptical police officer in that. And Sam Loomis is the name of Marion's boyfriend in Psycho, in case you were wondering if Carpenter was a Hitchcock nerd. Yeah, he is. Carpenter was paid $10,000 to write, direct, and score the film. Deborah Hill took no money up front in exchange for a back-end deal where she would get a percentage of the gross. This wound up being a smart move on her part. Getting to the cast of the film. First person I want to talk about is Loomis. A whole bunch of people were considered for it. The two people who were approached were Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Both of them turned it down. Cushing's agent didn't even, like, deem it worthy of Cushing taking a look at the offer. Lee looked at the lowball pay, and he decided no. Christopher Lee later said that this was the worst professional decision he ever made. Donald Pleasance also wasn't crazy about being in the film. He's the only person in this with any level of experience, although mostly in crappy B-movies. He is in several episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. He did get top billing, like you'd notice that right away. He did change his mind, however, because his daughter was a big fan of Carpenter's preceding film, Assault on Precinct 13. She especially liked the soundtrack. Pleasance was paid $20,000 for five days of work, the most of anyone in the cast. 
He is in the film for a grand total of 18 minutes. His part was also cut. There's like one scene where he's talking to his wife on the phone and Pleasance spurred Carpenter to cut it out because he thought Loomis would be a more effective character if he didn't have a family and was more of like an Ahab type obsessive person who was just hunting down Myers and having it just be about that. I'd say that was a good call. The next person is Jamie Lee Curtis, who eventually went on to bigger and better things, although she keeps coming back to this. She is the only character in the film who is actually a teenager. She was paid about $8,000, and she was Carpenter's second choice. He first approached Anne Lockhart, the daughter of June Lockhart from Lassie. However, Anne was too busy. She was in Battlestar Galactica at the time. He settled on Curtis when he discovered that she was Janet Leigh's daughter. Figured that having the daughter of Marion from Psycho would be good publicity for the film. They said Curtis was paid $8,000 and she was very insecure about it. She was under the impression that she was going to get fired after her first day. She was very surprised when she got a call from Carpenter who said that you, you're doing great, good work, really like what you're doing with the character so far. Curtis said that she was uncomfortable playing a quiet, repressed babysitter. She felt that she was closer in personality to Annie, who's a bit of a smartass in the story. I can see that, yeah. Despite the fact that she is now one of the archetypical screen queens, she has said, I loathe horror movies. I don't like to be surprised. However, she did say that Hill and Carpenter were her artsy horror movie parents, and apparently she cried when they broke up in 1979 because at the time they were romantically involved, not just business partners. Although they continued to be business partners after they split up, so I guess they got along in some way. Also, that opening scene where Myers' sister gets stabbed to death. She was played by Sandy Johnson, who was a Playboy model. She said she didn't mind the nudity, you know, Playboy model. But she didn't like the fake blood on her boobs, because in between takes, the person who kept scrubbing it off was a little rough on her. Just kept manhandling her boobs. Uh... And when she complained to Carpenter, Curtis volunteered to do the wipe-ups instead. Well, that was nice. And apparently, um, Jamie Lee Curtis has soft hands. <laughs> Um, it does not surprise me to learn that that woman wasn't primarily an actress. She was terrible. Yeah, that whole scene is something else. I, I get what they're going for with it. Uh, Carpenter modeled it after the very famous tracking shot at the beginning of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. And it's a memorable scene, but maybe not for the reasons that Carpenter wanted it to be. Yeah, for me as a first viewing and all, what really stuck out was her like having completely the wrong reactions to what was happening to her. Like, oh, Michael, pleasant surprise at somebody coming up to stab you in the chest. And not much of a scream. What really bugs me is that Michael is looking at his own hand while he's stabbing her. Yeah, that probably could have... Well, I don't know, maybe he's really obsessed with what he's doing. You know, zoned in, hyper-focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Keys, who plays Annie in this, she's the, the smart-ass one. She starred in Assault in Precinct 13, Carpenter's previous film, And she got into this because at the time she was dating Halloween's art director. Every teenage girl, except for Curtis, is very awkward in this. Yeah, and just as a character, she was the worst babysitter ever. Mm -hmm. My uh, opinion of these uh, teenagers as they were being introduced at the beginning of the film was, oh my god, Laurie needs better friends. So really, Michael Myers was rendering her a service because now she can in fact find better friends. Well, if the most recent Halloween movie indicates it, this did not go that way. But, all right, the other teenager is played by PJ Souls, who is also one of the mean girls in Carrie. She's not the girl with the hat. She's one of her sidekicks. This character was written with PJ Souls in mind, Linda. 
And at the premiere of the film, Souls was sitting in the theater and there's the part where, you know, after she has sex with her boyfriend, she flashes her tits at the camera and says, see anything you like? And the guy in front of her yelled out, you bet I do. And Souls apparently distracted him with her laughter. He looked behind and realized it was her and then got embarrassed. And then Myers himself, Michael Myers, uh, or The Shape, is played by several different people. In the scene where six-year-old Michael Myers is stabbing Judith to death, that's Deborah Hill. If you take a look at the hand as he's looking at it, as he's stabbing her, it is very nicely manicured for a six-year-old boy. And most of the scenes, uh, the ones where The Shape is stalking Lori, he's played by Nick Castle. It just happened to be Carpenter's college buddy who was hanging around on set that day and was offered the part because they're like we just need a guy to loom around you're already looming around put on this mask and do it he later directed the last starfighter and the 1990s dennis the menace movie he largely accepted the part just so he could watch carpenter work and take notes on how a movie is made the unmasked michael myers in the final scene is played by uh, tony morin who is the brother of aaron morin Joni on happy days he was paid a grand total of 250 dollars for it he, he's a little hurting for work i mean After the fact, I'm sure he could uh, augment that with convention appearances, right? Yeah, yeah. The the guy who's in Halloween for the last 10 seconds, there have been people who have made more out of less. Uh, The filming itself, uh, it had a $300,000 budget, which is basement level even by 1978's horror movie standards, and they had four weeks to make it, which is not very much time. Most of the props were either crafted from hand or purchased cheaply. Infamously, the Michael Myers mask is a Captain Kirk Halloween mask that they bought at a store for $1.98 and then painted white after removing the eyebrows and sideburns. Uh, They had considered Richard Nixon and Spock as well, but settled on Captain Kirk. William Shatner was not amused. (laughs) Also, Mike Myers, the comedian best known for Wayne's World and the Austin Powers movies, apparently got a lot of shit in high school for having the same name as the killer from Halloween. Before I transitioned, my my dead name had some pop culture weight behind it, and um, that's never pleasant, so I believe it. Yeah, they picked the Captain Kirk mask over a cheap clown mask with frizzy red hair. It was almost that. And as Sylvan pointed out, you don't really see a whole lot of the mask in this film. Myers is always in the distance, hiding behind a bush or sitting in a car. Most of the shots are from his perspective, something we'll be talking about in the thematic bits and its influence on later slasher movies. Curtis's wardrobe was purchased at JCPenney for $100. And since this was shot in California, They needed plastic and then painted leaves to simulate Illinois in the fall. And one of the set dressers who spread the leaves around, interestingly, was Robert England. Despite these efforts, there are a couple of shots in Halloween where you can see palm trees in the background. I did notice that, and I noticed that the leaves that you could see blowing around matched none of the trees. Yes, uh, if I ever do an episode on Hocus Pocus, we can go into great detail about similar (laughs) things. Oh, yes. Most of the trick-or-treaters were neighborhood kids. The Myers house was an abandoned building owned by a neighboring church. Carpenter was deliberately constrained with the killing scenes in Halloween. He had a more graphic murder in Assault on Precinct 13, which frequently resulted in boos from the audience. So he made the murder scenes in Halloween more quick and to the point and without that much gore in them. And kind of comedic, too, honestly. I don't know if that was entirely intentional every time, though. I mean, a lot of Carpenter's later movies are funny on purpose. 
So, I mean, I don't know if he was intending to be humorous in Halloween. My guess is no. That immediately made me think of Sam Raimi with uh, the first Evil Dead. They were legit trying to make a serious horror movie, but since it was bad actors reciting shitty dialogue with amateurish direction, a lot of people found Evil Dead hilarious, and they decided, oh, well, uh, let's make Evil Dead 2 as a comedy horror movie. In the scenes where the shape is hunting around, occasionally Castle would ask Carpenter for his motivation, and Carpenter said that his motivation was to get from one marker to another. Brilliant. The closest thing he got to an instruction was to look at the corpses and just sort of tilt his head as if he's admiring a butterfly collection. Since the scenes were shot out of order, as they usually are in movies, Jamie Lee Curtis was given an informal fear meter by Carpenter to indicate how frightened her character was supposed to be at any given moment. I can't touch upon the facets of this film without mentioning the music. It might be the element of this film that is the most far-reaching, although that is saying something. It was composed and recorded by John Carpenter over the course of three days. Uh, the main theme you, you notice at the instant the film starts, and you probably hear that even if you've never seen a Halloween movie before, it's in a 10-8 time signature or a complex 5-4, depending on how nerdy you are when that sort of thing. The signature was taught to uh, Carpenter by his father. Both John Carpenter's father and grandfather are very musically inclined. John Carpenter doesn't really consider himself to be much of a musician. He can't sight-read or write music in a notational sense. He just sort of plays and memorizes by ear and does the best he can with that. And you can tell that with the Halloween theme, like a lot of iconic motifs, it's a bone-simple one. You could take someone with no piano experience and have them do a competent version of the Halloween theme over the course of an afternoon. It's effective, though, and there are plenty of talented musicians who can't read music and haven't had formal training, so I don't think he should be totally hard on himself. I like the theme a lot. I think it's one of the best aspects of the movie. It sounds unfinished. It just keeps looping around and never quite gets there. Well, that works with the content. Yes, that's what it's supposed to be doing. It just sort of ups the tension. It kind of makes me think of a lot of elements of funk music where the way the... I mean, those are always in a solid 4-4 because it's easier for dancing, but the way the rhythm hits is that often the fourth note is undemonstrated to make it sound unfinished in order to make your feet move. But in the Halloween theme, it just makes you sweat. Unless you watch one of those YouTube videos where they play horror movie themes in major keys... Then Halloween sounds sprightly. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> also, the Superman theme in a minor key is terrifying. John Carpenter played synthesizers in Assault in Precinct 13 in Halloween because it was the cheapest method to get a full sound from a film score, and he admitted that he based a lot of it on Goblin's score for Suspiria and the Exorcist theme, both of which do a lot with a little. Fairly infamous anecdote about the score for Halloween is that a film executive watched an early screening of Halloween without the score in place, and they didn't have much confidence in it. They thought that it wasn't terribly scary. And then afterwards, when they saw it with the music ad, they're like, oh, wait, this works now. It's a pretty core component as to why this movie works at all, if you think it does. Now, the reception of the film, it grossed $70 million off its $300,000 budget. With that in perspective, that is $279 million in 2019 money. It is still one of the most successful independent films ever, even if you don't adjust for inflation. 
like a lot of horror movies, it got very bad reviews. A lot of people considered it trashy, cheap, exploitative, misogynistic. That is arguably all of those things, yes. A notable exception is that Siskel and Ebert, they both liked it, even though they usually hate slasher movies and they hate almost every movie that imitates Halloween. Interesting. What, yeah. what did they like about it? They both thought it was super creepy. Like, Gene Siskel called a cab, even though he lived only a couple blocks away. And Ebert went through his house and checked behind everything. The movie does give you a feeling of, like, wanting to make sure your doors are locked. The TV rights for the film were sold for $3 million. However, the movie isn't long enough for a two-hour time slot and network television. So Carpenter, against his better judgment, shot 12 minutes of extra scenes to fill that while he was producing Halloween 2. Most people do not watch the film with the extra footage. They consider that to be like balderization, except they're not removing stuff. They're adding stuff in, although most of the scenes are pretty superfluous, as I'm sure you can assume. Getting to the thematic currents of this film, a lot of stuff that plays into other flasher movies. First off, the concept of virginal purity and slut shaming. Both Deborah Hill and John Carpenter vehemently, in multiple instances, insist that Halloween was not intended to be a morality play. Now, they claim that the horny teenagers were killed solely because they were distracted by how horny they were, and that Lori survives the movie because she's being an attentive babysitter and therefore is more alert to stuff. She also got pretty lucky at, uh, at different points, but yeah, she's definitely way more observant than her friends. Not that that's saying much. If you look at subsequent slashers, especially the Friday the 13th series, I mean, you can look at the Friday the 13th series just doing everything Halloween did, except more so. And there, there is a whole lot of, if you show your tits to the camera, you're going to get a machete through your neck. Serves you right, you slutty teenager. Uh, I think the Nightmare on Elm Street films do an interesting inversion of that sort of thing. Especially the fifth one, where there's an abortion subplot, which, believe it or not, is handled a little more diplomatically than you would think A Nightmare on Elm Street 5 would. I think I was probably like seven years old the last time I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 5, so I don't really remember it very well. The next thing to come up related to this is Halloween is the film where the final girl just sort of gets calcified into an official trope. This is a resourceful heroine who survives the end of the film, usually by being pure of heart, also maybe virginal. Jamie Lee Curtis is arguably both. And, you know, depending on your perspective, uh, some people have argued that the final girl can be an argument for feminism, at least by a second wave perspective. I'm not sure if I can fully get behind that. Another thing it makes me think of is the, the trope of the Hitchcock blonde. Now, some people say that that is a second wave feminism thing because it's an inversion of the stereotypical dumb blonde because Hitchcock blondes are always smart, self-assured. They have a certain degree of agency. At the same time, they're an attractive blonde woman in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, which has a sort of connotation to it if you know anything about the director's private life. So I can't fully get on board with the Hitchcock blonde being a 100% empowering figure either. I gotta say, as far as final girls go, my favorite are uh, Wes Craven ones. Like, I like Nancy and I like Sid a lot. They, to me, feel very feminist and empowered. And I remember I have a friend who didn't watch horror movies at all growing up. They're a very anxious person and they assumed that horror movies would make them feel more anxiety. But 
you know, I also have an anxiety disorder, so we talked this out. And many anxious people actually love horror movies for the safety of the scare. So we started watching horror movies together, and I took them through my favorites. And they were amazed when we got to the Nightmare on Elm Street series by how much they liked the heroine. Like, they had this expectation that all horror movie girls must be horrible and annoying and weak and screamy and running up the stairs and doing all the stupid things. Basically, what is lampooned and scream. But I was like, yeah, no, Nancy's awesome. So I like Laurie as a prototype for the final girl, but she's not quite there yet. She still does stupid things like dropping the knife. And that being said, I don't want to get into the idea of the character doesn't do what I think I would do in that situation is not a plot hole. I'm not going to hold it against Laurie for dropping the knife because I haven't been in a situation like that. Maybe I'd drop the knife. Maybe I'd just sob in a corner and shit and die. I mean, fair, but I... I've only been in life-threatening situations a couple of times, and I don't think I performed as stupidly as Lori did. I'm still alive right now, so probably, but who knows. Yeah, I just, especially after there was already the thing with the knitting needle, I feel like at that point she should have known to keep the knife. Okay, I, I can get behind that. The next thing I want to talk about, which comes up a lot in slasher movies, is the vague threat of danger under the veneer of safety in suburbia. whole lot of that in the slasher genre. I think Nightmare on Elm Street demonstrates this at least as a perfect a metaphor as one can have in the subgenre. But you could definitely point it out in Halloween, although Black Christmas does it too. One thing that's notable about Halloween is that parental presence in this film is completely absent. Lori's on her goddamn own. Even when she's begging for help from the neighbors, they just sort of turn their lights off and leave her to rot because they think she's some kind of crazy teenager or something and they don't want to get involved. The whole white flight of suburbia, fleeing from inner cities, largely because of racism, in order to settle down into the white picket fence enclosure bubble. We grew up in Danvers, Mass., which is called Bubble Town by other suburban towns surrounding us. So I can get behind that at least a little bit. It helps with the tension of the movie, which is obviously why this became a trope, um, because Laurie is basically gaslighting herself in the beginning when she's seeing Michael stalking her, and she's creeped out by it but he's always like a flicker he's there and then gone and everyone else is like what are you talking about and it helps her not trust her own perception because things like that don't happen in safe little suburb place yeah that's something that happens on the news somewhere else that doesn't happen to us even though she literally dropped the keys off at murder house that morning because also our our hometown danvers bubble town does have some dark stories. There's no suburbia that's completely safe. And thinking that you're invulnerable to the forces of the outside world does speak a lot to us and our suburban upbringing, considering that we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is something that happens to people on the news. It doesn't happen to us. What are you talking about, the shape? It's a flicker. It's gone now. What are you talking about? Now, another thing I wanted to talk about was voyeurism, which is a big part of this film. A lot of over-the-shoulder shots, and as I keep saying, shots that are directly from Michael's perspective. Carpenter wants you to feel that you're not looking at the characters, that you're looking in on them, which I think helps with the tension and also makes you feel a little dirty while you're watching the movie, which helps the atmosphere he's trying to generate. One thing that Carpenter uses in Halloween that almost none of the imitators do is... He's very good at framing things around the foreground, especially in ways that sort of 
add to the sense of suspense in the film because this isn't a bucket of blood. There are maybe four or five people who die in this film and it's all spaced out and the first two thirds are just Michael following Laurie around and you have this sort of Damocles and you're just waiting for it to fall. And the voyeurism contributes to that as well as making us feel weird about enjoying this horror movie, being safely scared and all that. And again, it helps that Laurie is probably the most fully realized character, so she feels a little more authentic to be watching. Right. And one thing that I didn't write in my notes, but I definitely wanted to discuss after I thought about the movie a little longer, is stigmatization of mental health issues, which... I was going to bring that up if you didn't. Yeah, slasher movies are very guilty of this. We both also grew up watching Batman, which also has a degree of responsibility in this. If you look at any empirical data about this, people with mental health issues are far more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of it. Framing them as this endless succession of knife-wielding psychos in pop culture is not helpful when it comes to addressing these issues. No, not at all. And like the vacantness of uh, Michael Myers really bothered me because, you know, we are dehumanizing someone and taking away, like, Oh, his his uh, doctor is the worst. You know, he's not human. He needs to be killed. Like that is nothing like what the experience of having a mental illness actually is. And you know, we were talking about the the monologue where Loomis is like he needs to be locked up for the rest of his life. And he's like, yeah. Two years later, Ronald Reagan becomes president, and guess what he does? <laughs> Turns all of those people in the mental hospitals out into the street where. They become homeless and then just sort of cycle between homeless and in prison. And that helps the prison industrial complex, but not anybody who matters. Another thing that made me think of is that after Jaws came out, the great white shark was almost hunted to extinction. So these things have an effect on people. They really do. Like, another thing is, you know, when when people do have mental illness, this seems to be getting less and less of a thing with further generations, but the stigmatization makes you not want to go and get help because maybe you've only ingested awful pop culture depictions and think that, you know, you can't actually have the illness because it's so much more severe or it would make you horrible or dirty or whatever. So yeah, no, I I think this, uh, this contributes maybe just a not so great vibe on all that. I would have rather that Michael Myers was just a violent serial killer without having like a psychiatrist and a mental hospital involved. But you did say that in uh, as the franchise progresses, he gets increasingly supernatural, so maybe that helps. Yeah, the Halloween sequel story imitating the Friday the 13th sequels, which is weird to think about. Mm. That made me think of one thing. I When I had my um, nervous breakdown at the age of 17 and I spent a week in an in-care uh, facility, the doctor who uh, did my entry interview, his first question was, have you either seen or read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? And I said, no. He said, oh, good. <laughs> that skips like 10 minutes of orientation. And then he backpedals and like, by the way, the book and the movie are both great. You should check them out at some point. (laughs) (laughs) That is awful and wonderful at the same time. All right, moving on to the film's legacy, because it has a hell of a shadow. It's the blueprint for all subsequent slasher movies. When Friday the 13th decided to copy looking at characters from the killer's perspective and the minimal musical score drawn from synths and stabbing people as soon as they show their boobs to the camera, like, that is 
when it officially became a slasher thing, that is when it became associated with slashers. Probably to the, the genre's eventual downfall, because it didn't take long for that to turn into cliche and, and for that to turn into avid ridicule. I mean, Scream came out, like, the decade after. It didn't take long for the cycle to sort of curdle in on itself. Halloween had a number of sequels. The first one was Halloween 2 in 1981, which takes place the very moment that Halloween 1 ends, even though it's a few years later and Jamie Lee Curtis is visibly older. At that point, the Friday the 13th series had been humming along and there were a whole bunch of other ones. So Carpenter and Hill both thought they sort of had to up the ante. There are a lot more death scenes. There are a lot more elaborate, sometimes comical, possibly on purpose. That means that Halloween 2, at least to me, I think it's an enjoyable slasher movie, but it's a pretty basic one. I'd say it's skippable unless you're a big horror movie nerd and you want to run the series like, say, Pete on Fearless Films. Both Hill and Carpenter considered Halloween 2 to be the end of the Michael Myers saga, but they wanted to keep Halloween going as an anthology film. So Halloween 3 is unrelated to Michael Myers in any way at all. It involves alien technology trapping spirits into children's Halloween masks, which spreads a viral curse. This film did not do well. You don't say. Everyone hated it at the time. They wanted their white mask, knife-wielding maniac. They, a lot of people came to see Halloween 3 thinking it was going to be a Michael Myers movie. They're like, what the hell is this? Although it has since gained a cult audience because it's a weird movie. And really, every horror movie has at least some cult audience. Michael Myers came back for 4 and 5. The less said about them, the better. At that point, Jamie Lee Curtis was long gone, although Donald Pleasance kept coming back. It got a 20th anniversary sequel, Halloween H2O, which you have seen but do not remember at all. Yeah, we rented it shortly after it went to home video. And uh, so I, my impression of it, because did, it didn't linger much in my mind at the time, was that I should have seen the first Halloween before trying to watch it. I had very little clue what was going on. I thought it was fine. I, I watched it a couple of years ago, and it's a... Decent slasher movie. Jamie Lee Curtis is good in it. The one after that was a sort of riff on a reality TV, and it's terrible. And the less said about it, the better. In 2007, Halloween got a remake directed by Rob Zombie. To the ire of a lot of Halloween fans, he focused a lot on Michael Myers' background. You see a lot of him as a kid torturing small animals, being bullied in school, internalizing that rage. He gave Michael Myers an origin and a motivation to start killing people. I was wondering if that was ever fleshed out more. And uh, as we were saying earlier with the, you know, mental illness victims being more likely to be victimized by violence than perpetrators of it. The bullies are the ones who are more likely to be violent than the kid who's bullied. Zombie makes it so that Michael Myers comes from an abusive household. And yes, violent people tend to have been abused when they were younger. Granted, this is a crass exploitation film. It is not a realistic portrayal of mental illness either. But yeah, it does try to make Michael Myers into a believable, plausible figure. Which is interesting because in this movie, that was not the point of him. He was supposed to be vague and an unknown quantity. Like I said, a lot of Halloween fans do not like the Rob Zombie movies for that reason. Halloween got another sequel with the same name in 2018. This one decides that none of the sequels or remakes count. Only the first one does. And it takes place several decades later with 
Laurie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, as a sort of doomsday prepper, paranoid psycho who believes that Michael Myers is at some point going to escape from the sanitarium and start hunting her again. It has turned her into an alcoholic wreck. She is estranged from both her daughter and her granddaughter. And eventually Michael Myers does get loose and comes to Lori's house where she has set up her building as sort of like this home alone scenario with booby traps, except instead of Kevin McAllister, it's a septuagenarian Jamie Lee Curtis who has at least patched things up enough with her family so that they can help her just do a three generational ass whooping on Michael Myers, which is a scene I found very satisfying. At that point, I believe Laurie Strode starts becoming at least a third-wave feminist uh, figure. I'd be interested in checking that one out. And also, in this one, Laurie is not Michael Myers' secret long-lost sister. That is revealed in Halloween 2, which now is officially not canon. That was supposed to be an explanation for why Myers is fixated on her. Again, I think it kind of works if he's just this big, unknown, mysterious figure, but okay. Yeah, I'm not upset that they got rid of uh, Lori being Michael's sister. Some people were pissed about that, too. Because, I mean, the scare comes in in that he happens to fixate on Lori, but he could have fixated on anybody in, you know, safe, small-town America. Could be your small town. It could be anyone. Well, that's the entirety of my notes. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to mention before we close things out? I guess I just want to finish off with being kind of sad that Lori did not, in fact, go on to get better friends. Missed opportunity. I mean, there's a giant pile of insight and commentary and think pieces about Halloween. This film is important to a lot of people. I found piles and piles of stuff to work through, but... This is just about everything that I thought was worth mentioning, at least by my own perspective. So I guess we can leave things with that. We will talk to you again later soon.